This is Human V Robot, a podcast about the intersection of humanity and technology. Welcome to episode two of Human V Robot. Today we're going to be digging into tech in the kitchen, a little bit of philosophy, and finally we'll talk about the changing landscape of trust signals that we navigate in our lives today. I'm Andy Vanny, a software developer, and I'm here with my sister Heather. Heather, how was your week? It was good. It was good. How was your week, Andy? It was very good. Yeah, so uh, we, we had made a few notes on the things that we wanted to cover. We're going to each bring our own topic and then we'll talk about one that we've kind of decided on. Um, and your topic was uh, tech in the kitchen, which is interesting to me. I've done a, a little bit of research into like home automation and stuff like that. But do you want to summarize your thoughts on this? Sure. The reason I was thinking about this topic is because I fried the control panel on my oven um this week which was just a real treat and it was only three or four years old right and um i left it kind of open and it just like zapped it and i thought oh like you can't believe how fragile these parts are of these ovens and then when it came to shopping for a new oven so i thought okay gonna get a new oven you know upgrade a little bit see what's out there in the world of ovens yeah um and then i saw one feature that was like Wi-Fi enabled ovens and I thought like what would the possible use case for a Wi-Fi enabled oven what about like do I start my cookies while I'm out for a walk like I just I couldn't imagine what feature that could possibly have and then I thought I thought about technology and and kitchens and, and also people's kind of use of technology or considering of technology as being computers because I've been thinking about a lot that a lot that sort of technology and, you know, robots and all that sort of stuff gets kind of conflated with, I don't know, machines that process algorithms, I guess. But really, when it comes to, like, big changes in technology in the kitchen, to me, like, the, I don't know, maybe the last biggest change is, like, things that allow us to cook indoors, refrigerators, dishwashers. Like, this is some pretty big stuff. Um, We couldn't, uh, you know, we weren't able to keep the food cold, Right. And now we can keep food cold in our house all the time without having to get ice um, and like ship ice around the continent. Um, This seems like a pretty serious technological innovation. Yeah. Maybe like a transformational moment in in technology. Whereas like putting Wi-Fi in your oven uh, seems like just a, a mild feature adjustment. Right. So then I started thinking about features versus kind of big transformational change. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I did not end up getting the Wi-Fi enabled oven again because I thought it didn't make any sense. Um, but then I thought, what would I really like in the kitchen? Well, what I would like is like my actual real pain points are like having to cook every day, I right. guess. That's one thing. So if someone could come up with like robot arms that could cook for me, I mean, that would be cool. Or like yeah. wash my dishes. Uh, the second thing is basically like on the topic of food waste. So could there be a way for my fridge to understand what it had in it and the pantry? Like not just the fridge. That's the thing too is you can't think in terms of like discrete appliances. You need to kind of a holistic kitchen view. Yes. Yeah. So fridge plus pantry plus whatever, wherever else you store your stuff, you know, the potatoes in your basement or whatever. So a tally of all the food that you have yeah. and then basically sort of a thing that could combine that into sort of recipes that you could make. 
Um, because that's the hardest thing is trying to figure out what can I make from the stuff that I have. That's a right. hard problem for a human to deal with, but for a computer, that seems reasonably easy or doable yeah. um, to come up with. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of holding out for that. But again, like, I don't think we can put that on refrigerators. Yeah. And so that's a challenge for a tech company, like for, you know, all the people innovating like Samsung and LG and they're doing these, you know, fridges. I'm like, yeah, but that's not good enough. We need to be talking about like all the food. Yeah, I think so jumping back to like the features that you get today, I think we're in this kind of interesting part where like Internet of Things or like these Wi-Fi connected technologies are so trivial to make that we're kind of in this weird in-between point where there's a lot of features that are possible, but it's not really clear what features are useful and there's not really a something to tie them all together. And I think that's kind of the, like any new technology, there's progress towards a standardization, right? And I think a lot of the pain points come because we're much earlier in the progress to standardization than we think. Like we have standards for electronics and how they behave, but those are just like the functional, like making sure that this Bluetooth enabled whatever doesn't explode. That's, you know, that's a very, a different kind of standard than how do all these things work together? How do, how do we interface with them in our daily lives? And that's kind of more of a human standard that we get to, like take cars, for example, every car has a pretty standard user interface and car manufacturers have to follow that because it's well established what the human interface to it is. Right. But then in the kitchen, Again, like appliances have a pretty standard interface, but the electronic interface to it, when it's Wi-Fi enabled or Bluetooth enabled, is not standardized at all. And so we're kind of in this wild west. I actually just yesterday got a uh, Wi-Fi enabled smart plug to plug my air conditioner into uh, so that I can remotely turn it on on and off. But again, those things are kind of a wild west of in terms of standardization, right? The user interface to those and how we actually integrate them with our lives. It feels like a bunch of features just thrown out and they're hoping it'll all come together somehow in our lives, right? Right, exactly. It's like, um, like for example, like you, because I think people think of in terms of tasks and scripts and sort of like, you know, actions. And maybe the terminology that sort of makes sense here is like, you know, the sort of um, product design terminology of jobs to be done. Like we have certain things that we're trying to do. And then we end up with all of these weird and random features that don't interface well with each other. So my smart enabled thermostat, which I have, it needs to talk to other parts of my house when I'm like away mode. And then it's just all, you know, goes into away mode. And it, it kind of like has a concert of things happening in the background um, that I don't have to like actively deal with, but they need to talk to each other. And I guess that's all probably like coming. It's just, I think you're right to say like at this point, it's just so, you know, there's sort of the range of possibilities of what these things are. Maybe it could even like, I don't know, what about like tech enabled toilets? I don't know, like you could really take this and keep going with it, I guess. But um, the functionality of it is just not there. We can put Wi-Fi in it, but what are we going to do with it? Yes. Is it going to, is it going to like, is that information going to go to the government about like wastewater analysis? Like, what are we talking about here? Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, didn't think I was going to talk about toilets today. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's good. I I think it's definitely a, 
like I moved into my house about six months ago. And I there's some things that I would really like these kind of automation features for, but it does feel pretty fractured and I'm a pretty technological guy. And so I can imagine unless there's a designer putting together your whole home as a unified operating system in a sense. Maybe that's an emergent career. Yeah. Home automation designer. I don't know. I'm sure there are people already doing that. I, my yeah. guess is, uh, but I think it's something that's more important or going to become more important, right? Because if you don't have a unified system, it's just, it's just a mess, right? Yeah. And I guess as new technology rolls out at a faster pace, is that kind of fragmentation just going to get more pervasive or are we going to settle on standardized interfaces and um, cause for example, with this plug, my thinking was like, oh, I, I just put it on a schedule where it runs every few minutes, you know, or, or whatever. But when I got into the app, it was much more complicated than that. Like I can't just manually plug in like <laughs> a schedule like that. So I would have to script it basically do things that I would not expect the average person to do with their <laughs> smart interfaces, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know if we've landed on a standardized interface for how those things will actually work in the future. But right now, I think they're just not there yet. Everything you can imagine doing with a smart plug is not possible for the average consumer. I think there's probably a larger theme here. Um, it depends on your sort of theory of how things sort of emerge and come together. But I think there's sort of this like explosion and consolidation that tends to happen with innovation. This sort of like fragmentation is like, like a lot of new things. And then we sort of categorize them, put them in chunks, bundle them up. And then we hate the bundles. They suck. We explode the bundles (laughs) and then we can recategorize them again. So it's sort of like coming and going or whatever. Right. Maybe there's something in there. Let's get to your topic. Um, We're going to take a little bit of a leap here to philosophy away from kitchens. Yeah. So this week I listened to a podcast uh, called Philosophize This, if you're not familiar with it. Episode 169 is the episode that just came out this week. Uh, And the title is We Have Never Been Modern. And it's a review of some of Bruno Latour's thought. Um, And I will link this in the show notes. Uh, There's also a... uh, an article book, actually, I think that I will link. Uh, I haven't read the book, uh, listened to the episode and kind of skimmed the main topics of the book. But I think there's some overlap with some of the questions we have about thinking about human v robot and how to have these conversations effectively. So basically, Latour says that the distinction of modernism and postmodernism, where modernism is like the the Enlightenment thinking that everything can be thought of scientifically and where postmodernism is more a reaction to this, to that, saying things like society, uh, politics are often relational. They can't really be easily fit into those scientific mode of thinking. So his suggestion is that we think of these things as hybrid agents, right? Like every topic that we're concerned about is more of a hybrid rather than being either or like purely scientific or purely sociological or relational. And so 
what got spinning in my head thinking about that was that we're thinking of human v robot in as as a very similar dichotomy where or dualism you might say where sometimes i think when we actually dig into these we'll find that they're probably more hybrid than we first imagined so for example we've talked about technology in the kitchen which is like we're thinking of it as sort of an us versus them where there's more of a relationship developing where we have these new agents in in our kitchens or wherever that have more capability than they used to and so we have to develop new relationships with them and the one in particular that i was thinking of was social media how we interface with social media um, because it's kind of this technology that we interact with other people, but we also interact with the technology itself. And if we think of the technology itself as a hybrid agent, we have to think about what our relationship is to that. And I think where, where that led me was to maybe not super recent news, but Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter was interesting because... He wants to buy it to fix it, in quotes, fix it. Um, But it sounds like essentially he just wants a different set of rules. And I think like those rules of the system kind of define that interface for a lot of social media platforms. So I I got thinking about how some of the platforms work and my relationship to them, because I know that it's changed a lot over time. Um, I've noticed comments in like people when Instagram got super popular it was the interface it was that uh, agent itself like the interaction with the agent that was different from previous social media and then TikTok obviously more recently like the interface is the thing that changes and if we think of social media as a technology that we relate to how are those different and how do those change over time? I don't, I, I don't expect a, an answer, I think, but I think it's something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I, um, I really enjoyed listening to that podcast as well. The one thing I took from it was the, um, there was a lot of dualities in here. So I kind of got a little bit confused, I'll be honest. But the one thing that he presented is that, you know, we're thinking of putting things in a sort of like, a most basic categorization that we absolutely take for granted is that there's sort of like a human entities and non-human entities. So there's like the realm of culture and there's the realm of science, which is like right. observational things we can observe. And, uh, and you know, what I thought was kind of weird about that was also this sort of lingering, maybe miscategorization of what it means to be human even, because I think of sometimes that it can be very easy or attractive to like, it's like any kind of reduction leads to some categorizations that are like not helpful, but it's the only way to actually study something in any sense. So to make sense of it, I was kind of thinking that, you know, sometimes we tend to think of humans as being a kind of fancy ultra computers. And then instead of what I would call biological soup uh, or fancy biological soup, which is like sort of our mix of our emotions and, and then thinking about how then we relate to, to tech or whatever. Additionally, which is kind of funny how we talk about how we relate to tech as if it's like something outside of ourselves. It's this is the, it's not like this podcast is like human v bear, you know, it's like it doesn't just exist in the world, like we made it. Right. You know. Uh, so that's one thing. 
which I think kind of odd. It's like we're clear that we know that we are creating all of that. Like humans right. made the stuff, right? Yes. And we have choices, I, I guess. But I think like how we relate to to technology or maybe I, I mean I don't know. I'm not sure what my point is here, but I just thought it's it's really really almost impossible for me to start kind of unraveling that thought process about the human and non-human entities as all just like agents. Right. And like you said, there's this hybrid agents, which is like this combinations that happen. Yeah. Um, and and anyway, I, I thought that was really that was really interesting. And and I also think that this sort of like hybrid agents, social media, um, social media as being both a combination of sort of like human to human interaction, but then also the technology itself and the parts of the technology. I think we should probably spend an episode on that, but like the sort of shaping user preferences and what that all means. Yeah. Uh, because I think there's more to it than, you know, there's more here for us. Yeah. Like another framing I thought, a thing that I thought was kind of interesting is to think about other technologies, like much more archaic technologies, like a bridge. Take a bridge yeah. as like a, a wheel. Yeah. We, we think of it, we don't tend to think of a bridge as an agent because we see it as just an object in the world. And we, yeah. we think about it very as just a, an object without any agency, but to think about it as an agent in that, like it's enabling, uh, getting from point A to point B that like, and which may enable other social outcomes that we tend to put outside of the bridge itself, but thinking of it in terms of as an agent with all of those things included in that, is kind of a helpful framing, I think, especially when it comes to more modern technologies like social media is like, it's a technology that's in a sense, like a bridge, like it enables things and has social outcomes outside of itself. But to think of it in terms of all of those things combined in the one is helpful, I think, because we are relating to them differently as time goes on. And it's changed, that relationship is changing over time. You know what I think is really interesting about this is like, you could take this even back to some of the greatest military strategists in all of all time are really smart at combining sort of elements of how people work with natural elements, like a hill or a, a ditch right? <laughs> or um, trees or, or, or like a certain times of day. Like, they're actually quite good. And I think that's what makes a really good military strategist is that people can put together. And so I am very much not one of them, nor I'm an expert on this topic. But right. but it always occurred to me as interesting that people sort of made use of sort of psychological aspects of the their opponents um, mixed with, you know, just natural geographical features. And yeah. I just thought, like, this is really smart to think of all of those things as within within the strategy. And I think that that sort of encompasses maybe an idea of a hybrid agent is that it's all of those things together. Those are all agents, the physical right. landscape, as well as, you know, the yeah. mindsets of your opponents. Um, and I think I, I, I think it was really, I mean, it's a good way to approach this sort of this as well, because it's sort of, you're not on one side or the other side. It's always like kind of a mix of both. Right. You know, hybrid agents. Yeah. Yeah. So I think 
basically every conversation we could probably keep going for hours on end. But (laughs) I would like to get to our main topic that we were talking about, which is uh, trust, basically trust signals. And what what does trust mean in today's society? Um, And how is that changing? So what brought this up is like, uh, there are different trust signals in online interactions than there are in our day-to-day IRL interactions. And what does it mean? Like, are we entering an age where of a very low trust environment or are people learning to pick up new trust signals from online interactions or are people just falling for it and we're, we're just doomed to always, <laughs> you know, fall back to our old wiring of trusting our interactions when we shouldn't be. So you had... So some references here. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, you know, all the questions that you brought up are good questions. And I'm not sure my um, diving into this topic actually yielded any productive answers on this. Right. Uh, so, you know, okay. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what exactly trust is, where it comes from. Um, just wanted to be clear on what we were talking about. Um, so one of the ways that people talk about trust is sort of like the trust equation, which is basically like someone's credibility, reliability, and intimacy um, sort of is, a you know, over top of their degree of self-orientation will give you sort of like how trustworthy they are. So we think about other people as trustworthy, you know, if they are uh, presenting something credible and uh, they, they, you know, follow through on something and then we're kind of close to them. Um, but maybe they are just out for themselves and everyone is to some degree, but you know, they have to, you know, you sort of estimate how much they're in it for themselves, um, versus how much they're going to look towards your interests or maybe your interests are in common. Um, so that's one way to think about trust. Another way to think about trust, I think is, um, in a more psychological aspect is there's a sort of a binding, um, theory about trust. That, uh, that there's all these sort of different things that happens that's sort of like made up of networks in, in our minds. Um, right. So our view of ourself, our view of the other person, our view of the domain of trust. Um, like I would trust you to create this podcast with me. I would not trust you to perform open heart surgery on me. Right. Um, and so there's all this like information that we have, these sort of like um, binding of different sort of networks of information in our mind and trust is an emergent property of all of the binding of these different sort of networked pieces in our minds and each of those bindings are created of other bindings um so it's trust isn't just something that is um it's not really like a switch flipped like trust not trust right it's more of um and i sort of stress the emergence of it it just kind of like arises there's not like um, a day when we can say like, okay, we have trust. It's just, um, it just happens to be there if the presence of these things are all reasonably satisfied. You know, and I think the other thing too, to focus, to think about trust is I wanted to sort of assume like the function of trust in relationships. Like why do we have something called trust or something we think of as trust? And I think it's just because of the, you know, if you kind of go back to look at sort of human developmental kind of information, I mean, think about how vulnerable you are when you're born. Very. Um, There's a lot of, you know, the way of thinking about that is humans are born premature. Um, We are effectively useless when we're born. We can't walk. We can't do anything. We can't get anything for ourselves. We're completely reliant on our caregivers. So given that that is true, 
um, babies end up trusting sort of, uh, you know, implicitly just from the start because they have to, they have no other choice. Right. So, you know, to that effect, they're, they're seeing that babies um, will mimic the facial expressions of caregivers. It's please like, please don't reject me, basically, I think is what that is. Right. It's also kind of my theory on why we find babies cute is so we don't stuff them in a closet. Right. Um, I have two myself. They're so, it's, you know, they're tough. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, and so it, it, to, you know, sort of offset the toughness and complete reliance on the caregivers, um, we've sort of, they, they end up like, you know, being adorable or something that humans find adorable and can yeah. mimic our expressions and, oh, that's so cute, you know, because then, then we won't reject them or whatever. Right. So anyway, there's, uh, I think, I think a couple things from that is that um, trust emerges when we have information about ourselves and the other person, what they're like, what they're in for, what the domain is. Um, that we're interacting with them on. So we need some information about them. We need some information about ourselves. To the degree that we can access that virtually, I, I think we can have, we can have trust. Like that's kind of the conclusion I came to is that, you know, trust is, there's not something that happens in a person-to-person interaction in person that's sort of like there's the magic there. I'm not, I'm not sure if, I, th- I think if you have that in a virtual environment that you can have a good estimation of the other person and you can have a good estimation of yourself and you can have like there's some some a lot of these things I think we can have trust emerging in that context I wouldn't say just okay so just because people interact virtually there's no trust there is I think yeah I think the other thing that this sort of trust backgrounder a little bit is very um, you know at a very like high level is that people are hardwired for trust right there's usually presumptive trust and even if we think that we're like savvy millennials or whatever who are sort of like, we know better, you know, we're not going to trust people. Uh, sorry, your biology is still hardwiring you for trust. Yeah. Um, you're kind of stuck with it. Um, I think that's called uh, sort of presumptive trust is the default state. So, yes, I think I think in certain domains of virtual interaction, I, I would find that trust is something that we can form and have. Like, I think in this interaction, we can have a level of trust. And in some places, though, it's more complicated than that. So maybe let's get into the more complicated than that scenarios. Yeah. So just one point about that that I think may may tie in uh, is I wonder if like the physical. So in a digital communication, you actually have a lot more physical safety because you like you are separated by, uh, you know, it's mediated through maybe even hundreds of miles of <laughs> wire right so you don't have the imminent physical connection like in the example of babies and like uh developing a relationship with caregivers that you actually get is that physical proximity builds up over time a sense of physical trust that that maybe makes us trust even more because we're safe we're in our homes you know yeah, possibly by ourselves or with our loved ones like there is is not that uh um we can ha- we can totally trust that we are safe in our body um that maybe changes like if you're commenting online you know maybe you have less fear of of rejection or of conflict because you have that physical safety does that make sense i think it does the other thing that i wanted to say to you is that um, sort of in my background information on this is that touch actually builds trust. Um, so the um, the one way, I guess, maybe, I don't know if this is a way to hack trust or whatever, but 
you know, <laughs> adding a, a sort of a handshake or whatever. Like this is why these kinds of things persist right. is because that actual physical test like kind of gives you a more degree of intimacy. And I think like you with your, you know, in your home or whatever, you're going to have a lot of because right. you feel like your safety is high. You know, you're right. in a place where you are, you have good information about your own environment and your own status. You're not going to be, like you said, rejected in your own home right. or uh, rejected from a gathering uh, because you are at home. Right. Yeah. So I wonder if like maybe we're developing new signals that we are uh, somewhat more skittish about online interactions in that some we, we may feel completely safe in ourselves where others we may not really know how to how to judge the feedback we're getting correctly yeah. um but i I'm, i've kind of side sidetracked things a little bit i think like we wanted to talk about how how this functions in work settings which i think is like very important i haven't been working uh like completely remotely for, you know, it's only been a little while since I started working hundred percent remote and it is different. Like it changes your work interactions and your work relationships. I think generally work has attempted to be as non-physical, if that makes sense. Like it, 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 it's not the same kind of interaction that you have with family. So in a sense, it's, it is already, boxed off somewhat from that sense of like if you're rejected by a work colleague it's not as foundational to your sense of being as it is for for family right right uh, so is that has that has that maybe changed less than it has for family relationships or uh is it this is it similar like in that Maybe my question isn't even clear. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the the thing that I find with the... The one thing I find with work interactions is something that I find builds trust is when you go through something together. Right. Um, when you um, have a conflict and hash it out. Like, I think that kind of stuff deepens trust. And sometimes yeah. it seems like an online environment is an easy way to just skirt away from sort of conflict zones or, you know, problem areas or things, times when it's really, I mean, you could have really intense experiences, like a tough, really tough deadline or something Yeah, can happen, I think, remotely. But sometimes it requires, you know, that sort of sharing physical spaces and having to kind of gut it out, cards on the table kind of situation. Right. And I think that that is something that does build trust. I think I've had those kinds of interactions in a work setting, but I don't think I've had them virtually. It's sort of easier to just avoid each other until you forget right. <laughs> about the problem yeah. or something along those lines. Just keep it transactional, and which I think is very reasonable and easy to do, right. uh, is to keep it transactional and sort of maybe take the emotion out of it a little bit. Um or allow the emotional reaction to happen and then to respond later because communication is asynchronous. And we're talking about asynchronous communication, yeah. not in a meeting setting, but like in sort of like, I don't know, Slack chats or whatever. Right. Like you can temper your emotion before you respond to somebody, which could probably keep me out of trouble sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting fact of async communication that I think it, it does 
help us present our best self in a sense, but it also maybe takes away some, from some of the genuine where, where like in a conversation you're reading into things just by pace and tone and all those things that you yeah. may maybe lose in async communications and especially like trying to communicate through typing is just different than talking, right? It is. Yeah. Just the, 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 you know, the medium is different. Yeah. Some people, it's funny though, because I almost find what happens with some of my colleagues is that they, um, they're better communicators through type and some are better communicators through voice. Right. And so what I found is a good sort of, and maybe be like being able to kind of run in both worlds, I guess, is a good um, thing to do. Maybe especially if you're in the position of a manager is to think about um, that as being like sort of different mediums that people are kind of more or less comfortable in and then be just comfortable with however they want to communicate right. with you. Um, and which sometimes you're going to need to talk to people because it's usually faster. Um, you know, but it's maybe an interesting way to think about that. So I wanted to get back to trust, though, because it's sort of trust, mistrust. I mean, yeah, it's all related to trust. But I was thinking about things that seem on the surface like very sketchy situations. Right. For example, Airbnb, <laughs> staying yeah. at some stranger's home. When that first kind of came out, I remember that. And, I, and I, I was like, I remember my husband being like, you cannot be serious that we're going to stay at some home of a person that we've never met. Right. In their home with them is what we did i guess because of the positive reviews and i'm a very i'm a very trusting person i guess yeah um but you know i think in that case it was like almost just that we were all on you know i think maybe we call this transitive trust is that we have trust in the platform and so then we sort of extend trust to the very strange context that we're in and now i personally haven't been on the dating apps but i think probably something similar happens there too right um, where you extend trust based on the platform that you share, which again, like when I'm looking at it, seems just like, wow, I can't believe we do this, um, but here we are. Yeah, I totally agree. It facilitates interactions that would probably be unthinkable in without that. So bringing it back to a, an agent, like I think in a sense, we we interact with that agent with more trust than we would um, like obviously without that agent, you could have the same arrangement, but you'd either be wor working off like an ad in a paper or which would be totally untrustworthy or the recommendation of a friend, which would be a lot more trustworthy, but yeah. it's still a very awkward interaction to, to have. And so I think the platforms somehow facilitate this trust that we understand that those reviews are likely uh trustworthy like yeah. we believe that the reviews on airbnb are trustworthy yeah it does take a lot of trust and thinking about some of the other interactions that we have um i think that that has changed a lot with the platforms and i i don't know if it makes sense to bring it back to standardization as well like i think Airbnb in particular and Uber and things like this have really shifted things in that like our cultural standardization or our laws have not caught up with the technology. And yeah. so we're in this state where we're doing things that are legal 
that may, you know, there may be edge cases where that trust is misplaced and maybe yeah. the, the platform can't be trusted. Uh, but we have some level of faith in the technology that's going ahead of the um, the standards that, that maybe should apply to them. Like there maybe should be more standardization. Uh, like I know hotels and taxis are severely impacted by these platforms because they, they're enabling things that would not be possible without a, the technology and b the, the trust that people place in those technologies. Yeah. And I think that the, I think appearance kind of matters to us because that's part of our, I think that's part of our binding in the, in the sort of trust going back to the first conversation about that binding and how it's an emergent property is that we think we're just really good at judging what's trustworthy. In fact, we're not very good. It's funny when you ask people how good you are at something and then like 90% of people say they're above average. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. um, the math doesn't check out. The math doesn't check out. Um, but if if I asked you, like, are you really good at judging, uh, you know, can you, can you kind of get a, a gut feeling, a sense, you know? You'd yeah. be like, yeah, yeah, I'm really good at that, you know. Uh, yeah, most people are not that good at it. Um, and, um, and I think when you have something that just looks really good, yeah. looks nice, like the, you know, the user interface and how easy it is to find the places and how the pictures are all presented in the same way. And it's just so formatted, standardized. Yeah. And then you just think, oh, yeah, like this has to be legit. You know, why would someone put so much effort into something if it wasn't legitimate? And what you're thinking is the actually what I'm trusting there is the standardization, which has almost nothing to do with how trustworthy the person on the other side of it is, because just anybody could put up anything right. on there, basically, although they do have some verification things in there that I've gone through. I'm not to throw them under the bus, but I think that that's what happens with these kinds of platforms is when something looks good, right. um, we think it is good. Um, and we have this strong tendency to trust something sort of at face value. Yeah. Um, on face value, we trust things that look a certain way. We trust people who look like us. Um, yeah. If people look similar to us, we think they're more trustworthy. Right. Um, in the you know study of people's faces changed to look more like the participants. The more like the participants they looked, the more they trusted them. Right. So I think that that's what I actually kind of leads into the next point I wanted to talk about, which is about sort of faking it um, and mistrust, you know, because I was thinking about this in relationship to something else that I've been sort of aware of that I've kind of like, okay, sure, Um, which is basically like the use of avatars and sort of virtual situations. And maybe the fact that interacting virtually means not showing your face at all or anybody showing their face ever. Or using one of those cameras that like edits what you look like, or even just filters on Instagram. Like, yeah. do we even know what people's faces look like anymore? <laughs> um, and I wondered if, like, if it was just you know this kind of business of because, on the one hand, actually this business about trust, trusting people that look like us is kind of a malfunction because yeah. that is actually kind of a poor way to judge trust because then you end up with stereotypes, racism, bias, like there's a lot of bad stuff in there. So then I wondered actually if, you know, kind of putting everything in an environment where then we're showing who we're not actually, like everyone's showing who they're not actually physically. 
you know, maybe that could lead to some good things. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we just all make up names, you know, the gender neutral names and have fake faces. And I don't know. I wonder what would happen to hiring and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is very interesting. And it kind of ties in with the with the previous point or the what we talked about, about like maybe by re- reducing that barrier or separating us, like we get more confidence and we're actually it's fairer as a whole, but our interactions become more surface level and are less. I want to say deep, but I don't know what deep means in this sense, really. Like, like maybe we're just having uh, interactions that have no depth to them, right? Like that we're not actually invested in, like, because we're not invested in that avatar beyond, like, we can just throw it away, essentially. That yeah. And therefore, the people on the other side that are interacting with that avatar know that, and they know that yeah. about themselves as well. So there's not that same level of binding that we talked about. Yeah, it's not that creation of self because you have to have a view of yourself and a view of the other yeah. in order for trust to emerge or that's part of the emerging. I'm really I'm really I'm really leaning on that theory, but I think it makes sense um to to apply it here, but I I think that uh yeah, if if you have a view of yourself as a fake version of you or sort of a reduction of you or a extension of you or extreme version of you you know, like you said, you can just sort of toss it when it's not working anymore. You don't have to have some, you know, complicated version of you or whatever that's, right. that puts a lot of different things together. Yeah. And it can just be contextual, like in this one environment, I'm going to interact with this. And then whip, in this one environment, I'm going to interact like this. So you have a lot of different potential yous that yeah. exist. Yeah, which is somewhat true in in real life as well right it like is. with oh, different yeah. with yeah. different peer groups or uh work groups you know you do you do have a different self but it this is kind of taking it to the extreme i think maybe yeah. and may, maybe there are some freedoms unlocked with that but maybe we do lose something through that um we do have a number of other points but i think maybe we want to wrap it up there and come back to those because i think there's some here that we could really dig into more more deeply like how social media has affected trust and our trust in institutions and other uh technologies within our lives how we trust them and i think we probably could expand those into full episodes likely in the future i think trust is a theme yeah exactly i think trust is a theme and i think Having this as our first interaction, what I found is that it's hard to come to like a logical, cohesive conclusion about trust in tech, because trust underlies the relationship that people have between, you know, a person, like agents, basically, like we talked about. Trust underlies relationships. And each of these things that we're talking about describes a relationship of some kind. And so it's hard to put hard limits on the the conversation of trust, because we're saying like every time you interact with a thing, you could form trust. Okay, right. now that's a big problem to yes. address in one podcast. Yeah. 
Um, so it's like trust in what context? Um, as at first I thought, well, you know, trust, let's talk about trust or whatever. Okay. But, and then I'm like, okay, where is what well, anywhere trust in institutions, governments, business, uh, trusted tech. Do I trust like the tech in my home? Do I, you know, uh, or do, you know, like, do I trust people via tech? Do I trust the company? Like every single one of those things. So it's almost like going to come out in every sort of interaction that we describe between the agent of a person to an, another person meeting mediated by tech or with the tech itself, there's going to be a level of trust, trustworthiness in there, and maybe something that is more or less complicated than just this sort of like person to person, you know, standing outside. I don't know why I'm picturing them in a field somewhere. I'm not sure. Just, you know, just just shooting the breeze, you know, sort of, I don't know. And it, it, maybe it's a bad thing to think about it sort of in that maybe purest context, because is there a purest context? Who knows? Um, but it's going to underlie all of those relationships that we're forming and having. It's going to be shallow. It's going to be deep. It's going to be a lot of different things. Um, so it'll come up again and again, but we should leave it here for today. Yeah, I think it is a strong grounding principle that will probably come up in, in many different uh, topics that we cover in the future. But for now, thanks for chatting, Heather, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To hear all our episodes, search for Human V Robot wherever you find your podcasts.